Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Back to Conspiracy Normal with your host Adam Sane, and uh, I have uh, Luke and Bobby who are late as usual. So uh, on the line, I have uh, Mr. Nick Redfern, and uh, we're going to be talking about his book, uh, Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. Have uh, been reading it and uh, have really enjoyed it. It's a, kind of a nice little, uh, some nice little grisly tales in there. Uh, Nick, uh, welcome back to Conspiranormal. It's good to have you back. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, last time we talked about your book, uh, Final Event, uh-huh. which was probably like one of my favorite uh, UFO books ever, oh. you know, all about Jack Parsons mm-hmm. and uh, and um, Marjorie Cameron, L. Ron Hubbard, uh, the Collins Elite and all that stuff. Uh, I believe that's like episode, I think, 26, somewhere around there, so... Uh, I think this is like episode fifty-six now, so it's been it's been a little while. It's been yeah, a, just about a yeah, well, year and a few months. Out, um, that book came out in two, end of two thousand and ten, so it's about three and a half years old now, something like that. Yeah, I'd heard it on a good interview that you did on Future Quake back, I think, around okay. that time, about two thousand ten or two thousand eleven, mm-hmm. and uh, I'd really just wanted to get you on to talk about that book. Uh, but you know, you're kind of a Jack of all trades and kind of the weird, the weird world of uh, UFOs and mm-hmm. cryptozoology and all that kind of, all that kind of good stuff. So, uh, close encounters of the fatal kind. Um, what exactly do you mean by that, uh, by that title? Well, the, the book's sort of very different to any other UFO books I've ever written because all the rest are about the nature of the UFO phenomenon itself and what might be behind it, and what the agendas are, and so on. The new book, Close Encounter of the Fatal Kind, that's all about people within ufology who've died under unusual circumstances, suspicious circumstances, 
are just plain vanished, never to be seen again. So in other words, it's, it's not so much about the phenomenon, it's about how people investigating the phenomenon may have got too close to the truth in some cases and then, you know, somebody essentially terminated them. And in other cases where aspects of the phenomenon in itself, the entities behind the phenomenon may have been responsible for some of these deaths and disappearances. So it sort of pretty much covers the 40s to the present day and, um, and focuses on literally dozens of cases altogether. I think probably most people within who have an interest in UFOs know of, you know, a few cases that where that are sort of perceived as sinister or suspicious how the person's died. But it's sort of only when you really begin to look at it across the board the last 70 years, you see the sheer number of people that have ended up in sort of very strange circumstances, ended up dead. And um, that's why I wrote the book, was because, number one, you know, if you're writing a book and people are going to spend the money and buy it, you want to be able to give something new to them. And the other right. thing, of course, whenever I write a book, you want to be able to sort of touch on something that hasn't sort of really been the subject of a full-length book before. You know, you want it all to be new. So, and I was, even I was surprised that nobody had ever sort of done that, you know, written a book on all the weird deaths in ufology. So that's sort of the background to it, what it's all about, and sort of why I wrote it as well. Well, Luke has just walked in the door. Hello, Luke. Hey. Uh, how you doing, Nick? Hi, Luke. It was just you, Luke? Yeah, it's just me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I couldn't get someone else to uh, get ready in time. So I got gotcha. you. We would have missed half the podcast. Had so. to look for their wallet or something yeah. in, the, in the dryer. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a long story, Nick. Sorry about that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, so I want to start kind of like at the beginning of the book. And you, you take the book, which I think is really great, like chronologically, and uh, – it took me just a slight bit to kind of realize that. So you kind of go from 1947, basically from the time of uh, the Kenneth Arnold sighting. First, this is kind of like the modern day of UFOs. That starts the modern day, um, you know, version of what's the, what we call unidentified flying objects. And you start off with kind of like the first kind of close encounter of the fatal kind, which was the Maury Island um, sighting. And what happened there? Which I think, like, actually, for somebody, like, initially, I think a dog was killed. Yeah, that's right. And then it sort of uh, expanded to people and, and more and more people. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, when you said about me doing it chronological, um, I did actually wonder about doing it from the perspective of, you know, should I do researchers who died, then pilots who vanished, or pilots that crashed. And uh, But I thought doing it chronologically, it would sort of allow people to see how how the phenomenon of the deaths has progressed over the years. And if we can see any trends in how the, you know, certain different types of deaths occurred time and time again. Um, but the Maury Island one is sort of notable because it actually occurred three days before Kenneth Arnold's encounter. Now, Kenneth Arnold, um, arguably the most famous UFO encounter of all, I guess, next to, to Roswell in terms of, you know, sort of public visibility. But um, Arnold's encounter occurred over Mount Rainier in Washington State when he was actually looking for um, a crashed aircraft in the area. And he said he saw this sort of squadron of objects that when he told his story when he landed and the media said, well, what were they like? He said they were like, fl they were like saucers would fly if you skipped them over like a lake. And so yeah. an, an enterprising journalist came up with the term flying saucer. That was uh, 
how it was created. Unfortunately, I don't think he got royalties on it. But <laughs> yeah, uh, kind of the meme of the time. Yeah, exactly yeah. like the meme. Yeah, and it just spread. And um, and of course, what happened was he sort of created and generated a lot of publicity. Now, from there, what happened is that one of these stories that had sort of predated Arnold's just by sort of three days began to surface. People were saying, hey, maybe that's what I saw. And Maury Island is in Washington State. And on the 21st of June, a man named Harold Dahl uh, was out in the waters of the, of the harbor at Maury Island and um, saw, kind of like Arnold actually, saw like a squadron of UFOs. It wasn't just one. And within this group, one of them was sort of flying or moving erratically, um, you know, sort of wobbling in the sky. And the other one sort of moved in close to it as if to sort of buffer it in some way. But suddenly it exploded and showered all this strange wreckage down into the water and the, and the shores of the, of the harbor. And uh, it was described as being two different types of wreckage. One was almost like a volcanic slagmite-type material, and the other was sort of a lightweight foil substance. And when it rained down all this wreckage, um, it reportedly a lot of it came down and hit the boat. And apparently Harold Dahl's dog that was on board the boat was killed. His son was injured. And um, so everybody's pretty much, you know, traumatized. Well, they made it back to shore. And Dahl uh, shared some of this wreckage with a guy named Fred Chrisman. Fred Chrisman had sort of an unclear relationship with Dahl in terms of was he his superior at work or did he have some sort of hold over him. But, but, but um, he was a very strange character, Chrisman. Um, he had a lot of, still to this day, unclear ties with the world of espionage and intelligence gathering. And he actually popped up in the Kennedy assassination years later. But um, yeah. what happened was that Chrisman uh, got hold of some of this wreckage the local media heard about the story. And on top of that, of course, the military got interested as well. And because this was the early days, you know, just literally three days before Arnold, very little was known. So Army intelligence um, flew two personnel out to Maury Island, one of them a First Lieutenant Frank Mercer Brown and the other one Captain William Lee Davidson. And it was their job to collect the wreckage and take it back, or take it to, I should say, Wright Field in Ohio, which today is Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in, in Dayton, Ohio, which is a base. Yeah, that a seems lot to of come up a lot. That seems to come up a lot in your book too. Yeah, well, Wright-Patterson is sort of in a place long associated with like crashed UFOs, dead aliens, and wreckage, and so on. But um, what happened was that Davidson and Mercer Brown. Um, sort of heavily began investigating things in town, see what was going down. But at the same time, um, Ray Palmer, who was the editor of Amazing Stories magazine, um, he got onto the story, and basically he recognized it would probably increase sales if it was told. So what he did, he hired Kenneth Arnold, who he was friends with, and Ray Palmer actually co-wrote um, Arnold's book, The Coming of the Sources. So because they were associated and knew each other, um, Palmer hired Arnold to go out to Maury Island, investigate it, and do a write-up of the story for Amazing Stories magazine. So Arnold was out there. He had the Army um, military intelligence out there. We already had one dead uh, individual, or the dog at least. And, and then things sort of get, got even weirder. Um, when they were satisfied that they got enough of this wreckage that could be analyzed at Wright Field, 
uh, Brown and Davidson took to the skies again from a place called McCord Field. Um, but they'd go, hardly gone any distance uh, when the plane caught fire, burst into flames in the sky, and crashed to a place near Kelso in Washington. And both men were killed. You know, the plane was just like a fiery wreck. Uh, although actually there were other crew members as well who survived, but those two didn't, interestingly enough. And the large box that um, the two guys had loaded aboard with all this wreckage for analysis, that was reportedly never found. So that was the end of the two military guys, and the wreckage was gone. Now, on top of that, two of the local uh, newspaper uh, staffers who had been reporting on it as well, and who were also talking about um, telephone interference and phone tappings and buggings as if somebody was listening on the line, um, they died under circumstances that are still sort of seen as mysterious today, that in, you know, the coroner doing the autopsy, they couldn't figure it out. One of them was a United Press guy named Ted Morello, and he actually warned Arnold prior to his death to get out of town that there was something really weird going down. And the other one was a guy named Paul Lance, who was a reporter for the Tacoma Times newspaper. Well, and that, so that's four human deaths and a dog death. Now, on top of that, as if, you know, you could even get any more, uh, when Kenneth Arnold was flying back, completed his story, you know, he was going to file the story with Ray Palmer, he took to the skies, didn't get very far when his engine started to splutter, and it was only due to his skills as a pilot that Arnold managed to sort of semi-land the plane rather than, you know, just sort of plunge to his death. And it turns out that whoever had refueled his aircraft had left the fuel cap open. So when he got higher in the sky, the fuel literally started to freeze in the tank, and that's what caused the problems. And um, so we had four human deaths, one dog death, and almost the death of the guy who almost single-handedly coined the term flying saucer. Yeah, one near miss. Yeah. It wasn't um like Fred Christman was involved with that case. It wasn't uh Guy Bannister as well. Well who also shows up in Kennedy assassination. Yeah, well Bannister was sort of on the periphery. He was actually in that area yeah. at the time and he was involved in various um UFO cases. A lot of the um investigations into UFOs that Bannister did in the summer of forty seven when he was still an FBI agent, a uh, special agent his UFO files have been declassified and um, and he was involved in about in the investigation of about 15 or 16 UFO cases from June to September 47. Um, and at some point he got a briefing by the mili by military intelligence. We don't know exactly what went down in that briefing aside from the fact that you know he may well have been told quite a lot. But yeah, he was allied with. Um, uh, Chrisman in 63 when the Kennedy assassination occurred and so this has given rise to the idea that various people with intelligence ties in 47 may have been brought into some sort of highly classified UFO program and then in 63 when they're all still in it you know whether an official program or like a shadow agency that they were brought in um, possibly even to um, take part in the assassination of Kennedy, which has also been linked with UFOs from the perspective of, you know, was he on the verge of wanting to reveal the truth when he got shot? Yeah, revealing something. That's another that's another case for motive for someone to kill Kennedy. Yeah. Um, Roswell as well has several victims. 
involved, people that were you know, that were killed or died mysteriously. Yeah, I mean, Roswell's one of those interesting cases because you often think, what else can we write about that hasn't already been written? Uh, right. Because so many books have been written. But one of the things that people really haven't touched upon to a great extent is the, the deaths at Roswell. I mean, when people think of Roswell and dead bodies, they think of the stories of aliens, you know, strewn around the, the desert floor. They don't necessarily think about or even know about the, the mysterious uh, human deaths. Now, when we look at the case, um, I suppose the most important thing of all is the location, a place called Lincoln County in New Mexico. Um, and the, the literal location was the Foster Ranch, which is this gigantic um, area of ranch land in Lincoln County. And I went out there in 2010, and I mean, it, 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 it's huge. You know, it's almost like a small small county in itself, but that's just a ranch. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but the story is that the rancher, Matt Brazel, found all this strange wreckage. Some of it described not unlike the Maury Island wreckage, like a lightweight foil um, strewn across the ground called the local sheriff, or, or contacted the local sheriff, and then the military were brought in. But there are a lot of rumors and weird stories about what happened before the military actually got there and secured the site. I mean, bear in mind that even today, it takes, if you, if you travel from the old Roswell base out to the actual crash site, um, it takes like two hours. That's how far away it actually is outside of Roswell. Back in 47, you know, the roads weren't anywhere near that good. So, in other words, we have this story that after uh, Brazel contacted the military, that there may have been other people, you know, sort of friends and neighbours went out there and things like this. And there are stories about uh, Brazel's son, uh, at the time very a young boy named Vern Brazel, may actually have seen the bodies or body parts sort of strewn across the desert floor, and it really traumatised him. Now... Very little is known about Vern, except the fact that when he was legally old enough, he left uh, home in New Mexico, wandered around aimlessly a bit, then uh, headed to California and blew his brains out at, like, 23. And one of the stories is that sort of the trauma of being affected by this as a young child sort of never went away, and he just, you know, it just overwhelmed him. Now, on top of that, there are sort of two other aspects relative to Roswell deaths. Um... One revolves around a woman named Miriam Bush. Now, in 1989, a guy named Glenn Dennis went public with his Roswell story. In the summer of 47, um, Glenn Dennis uh, was a mortuary assistant at the Ballard Funeral Home, and he got a call out of the blue from the local base, which is literally sort of a quarter of a mile up the road from where the funeral home is, um, saying, have you got any small child-sized caskets? They were looking for sort of four, five, or six of them. And, of course, you know, back then, Roswell was a fairly sleepy little town. And to get a call like that, it was clear to him something significant had happened. So he um, he went out to the base. That was the thing he basically did. And, of course, all the, the guys at the base knew him anyway. They just assumed somebody had called him there to deal with whatever was going down. But he didn't. He just got his own initiative. And so they, but ironically, they just led him all the way through just assumed he was there officially. Um, but he saw a nurse friend of his who told him to get out of here as quickly as possible, and she told him that these strange bodies had been found in the desert. Nobody knew what they were or where they were from or anything, just that they'd been found in, in association with all this huge wreckage field. And um, she described them as sort of small 
humanoid and just sort of not, you know, sort of traumatic looking, you know, the partly sort of pulverized and battered, but they just, you know, they look kind of just horrific to look at anyway. And um, now Glenn Dennis went, basically didn't say anything other to a few close friends uh, at the time, but he went public in 1989, but he didn't reveal the nurse's name. He gave various aliases and admitted that he'd sort of tried to obstruct the researchers because he said, although he wanted the story out, he didn't want to bring any trouble to the woman who told him. Now, it seems that the woman who told him the story actually wasn't a nurse after all. The the best um, argument we can make is that she was a woman named Miriam Bush. Miriam Bush was not actually not a nurse at the, the base hospital, the, the military base, but she was the executive secretary at the base hospital. Um, and Miriam Bush's family has gone on the record as stating that she told her parents, she was like 25 at the time when she worked at the base, she told her parents in the summer of 47 about the bodies being brought in and that she'd seen them and that there was some sort of preliminary investigation of them before they could be flown out for autopsy and preservation and whatever. And so Miriam Bush is almost certainly Glenn Dennis's nurse. He just sort of obfuscated a bit to, you know, skirt around the story and keep people away yeah. from her. Well, it turns out that in the wake of the event, Miriam Bush, sort of like um, Bern Brazel, descended into like a very sort of bad psychological state. And by the time um, that Glenn Dennis went, story, uh, went public with his story in late 89, she was a full-blown alcoholic. She was very paranoid. And she may well have had reason for being paranoid. She thought that somebody was, or a group was following her all the time, or somebody was trying to track her down. You know, maybe somebody lost track of her years ago and they were trying to find her again. What happened was that as, t as 1989 came to a close, and just not long after Glenn Dennis went public, uh, Miriam Bush checked into a hotel under her sister's name and address, and she was found dead in the hotel room the next day uh, with bruises on her arms and with a polythene bag over her head. Um, and, you know, I don't find it coincidental that she died or was killed, however you want to look at it, just after Glenn Dennis went public, because she may well have been one of the very last few surviving people who uh, was a really credible person who actually saw the bodies and may have been able to fill in significant gaps and she would have been someone the media would have listened to. So that may have had some bearing on her death. But then there's like a third angle of Roswell deaths as well. Um, going back to the 1990s, there have always been rumours that at least at one of the crash sites, because there are stories about, you know, it's like if an aircraft explodes in the sky and it showers all the wreckage down, you know, it could be spread across miles. And that was a story with Roswell, that the various sites where significant amounts of materials were found. And there's a story that some body parts were found at one site, that when the technicians were out there, they were exposed to what was assumed to be some sort of very fast-acting, lethal alien virus that had them sort of bleeding from their nose and the mouth and their ears. And probably the closest thing we can think of today is something like Ebola. Now, this story surfaced in the mid-90s unofficially, um, you know, but it was just an interesting story but couldn't be validated. Well, it turns out that um, about four years ago, through the terms of the Freedom of Information Act, I got hold of a 700-page um, 
declassified file. Well, actually, I should say it's closer to 2,000 pages, but 700 or so pages, that's the amount that have been released. And they actually talk about the sudden and spontaneous outbreak of a very sort of deadly and quick-acting plague in Lincoln County where the crash happened in the summer of 1947. And various people, adults and children, who went down with this plague were taken to a place called Fort Stanton, which is also in Lincoln County, uh, but that none of them could be saved. Now, on top of that, there's a story about how supposedly some of the wreckage was taken to a, a very highly classified military base at the time called the Sandia Base, which is also in New Mexico. Well, what the file state is that not only did this plague break out in Lincoln County, it broke out in the Sandia Base as well. And the Sandia section of the file is like a 30 to 40 page file. It's, it's like a, you know, a document all of its own. Um, and it's clear from the military that they, um, they didn't believe that this plague, this fast-acting plague, had broken out um, accidentally. They felt there was something more to it. Now maybe if there's a connection with the crash, the guys who were investigating the plague site may not have been cleared you know, on the full story, so they didn't know the other pieces and, you know, bits and pieces. But certainly, you know, when you've got this plague breaking out suddenly at the same time as the crash, and we've had rumours of this going back to the 90s, and now suddenly, sort of 2008, 2009, files surface that really do show there was an outbreak of plague in the area. You know, I think this is a, potentially a major part of the story that still is going to sort of require a lot more investigation but it may open a lot more doors as well that's like the movie the andromeda strain yeah it's exactly like that almost yeah yeah that's really kind of that's a frightening possibility yeah. uh you know about the nurse um as you were saying that and as i was reading the book could it have been possible that him just coming out with that information and i know that he was trying glenn dennis i know that he was trying to protect her identity but could it have been possible that that brought all that, and if she was teetering on the edge, that him bringing that out might have just been the, the last draw for her? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it could be that as well. And, I mean, we can never yeah. say it wasn't suicide. Um, you know, I Of mean, course, I would think that people would, you know, normally not kill themselves with a polyethylene bag, but, you know. Yeah, well, well that, that's one of the, the odd things about it, you know. I mean, I guess you can never really say what, a person thinks when they're going to kill themselves, but right. it does seem strange, you know, to put a plastic bag over your head and yeah. tie it up. You know, there are there are easier ways of doing it. You know, like pills or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, it could it could because she told her family at the time, and she was sort of, I mean, just scared, rigid back then, and apparently she never lost that fear that somebody. If they knew she talked, but, you know, that would be the end of it. So it could well be. I mean, to live like, that was 47, she died in 89. I mean, to sort of live 42 years carrying all that stress. Yeah, it's possible that it just took its toll. And maybe she just was genuinely worried that when Glenn Dennis went public, that somebody really would find her. And she wasn't thinking about, like, a UFO researcher. She was thinking that whoever is still hiding the Roswell secret today might think, well, you know, if somebody gets to her before we do, everything's going to come tumbling out. Because she really was a highly credible, you know, respectable source. Um, so I don't think it's impossible, at least, that she, you know, um, 
she may have just taken the ultimate act herself. Um, but even if she did, as tragic as that is, it also demonstrates that she realized something or knew that something significant and weird had happened at Roswell. You know, that's the significant thing about it is that if she did kill herself, it clearly wasn't over a weather balloon, you know. There's tons of weird suicides, I mean, quote-unquote suicides that are in your book that just seem um, very elaborate and not, you know, very simple. Mm. Um, and, you know, two of which are uh, Forrestal, and where I think it gets really weird is with uh, Frank Olson. Mm. And, you know, uh, this the, the, whole, the Frank Olson chapter is probably my favorite chapter in the book. Because at first I thought, well, why is he covering Frank Olson? What does that have to do with UFOs? But it became pretty apparent as the chapter went on that uh, there may be a link between um, UFOs and alien abduction and mind control. Yeah, the Frank Olson story is a very strange one. I mean, I should sort of preface this by saying there's no absolutely no doubt in my mind at all, there's a genuine UFO phenomenon from somewhere else. You know, whether it's extraterrestrial or sort of interdimensional or extra-dimensional, I have no idea. Or it might be a combination of all those, but it, but it is real and it's nothing to do with us. But in yeah. saying that, I think there are also, there's good evidence that there are other cases that may have been staged involving things like hallucinogenics, um, mind-altering substances and technologies to fabricate UFO events. And this may have been done for several reasons. One, to allow, you know, those who are hiding the truth about UFOs, they may want to be able to see how the average member of the public would react if we are one day confronted by real aliens. So in the early days, at least, this may have been done because we're not able to predict when UFOs and aliens might appear. Well, if you could stage an event and then clandestinely watch the reaction of the people, that would psychologically give you a good indication of how things might occur in the real world and give you a, like a, a forward advance, so to speak. The other angle may just be to see how mind-altering these technologies were. In other words, you know, if we can make people think they're seeing UFOs and aliens, we can use this technology on enemy troops and have them see anything. So I think, I think there was angles like that is why the mind-control technology was used. But as far as Frank Olson was concerned... This is sort of a very controversial story, not the least reason, because um, it ended in, in a guy's death in, on November the 28th, 1953. Now, Frank Olson was someone who was really at the forefront in the early 50s of the early mind control programs, as it's known in sort of generic terms. And although around the world over the years, various projects and operations have been put together in this field. Certainly the most famous one is MKUltra, um, which was a CIA program. It's almost like an umbrella program with various other sub-projects below it. Um, but the idea was, to, overall idea, was to see how the human mind could be manipulated. And Frank Olson was someone who um, had a, like a close liaison um, with the CIA on this particular issue. And um, Olsen, um, as you could probably guess because of the subject matter of the book, um, ended up dead. And it appears yeah. to be related to his work. Now, as I said, it all related to work with the CIA, uh, with the military out at Camp Dietrich, 
working on things like bi um, biological ways to alter the mind, chemical substances, and so on. Now, it turns out that on November the 18th, 1953, 10 days before his death, um, Olsen was actually clandestinely hit by LSD by a man named Sidney Gottlieb. Sidney Gottlieb uh, ran the CIA's technical services staff at the time, and LSD was sort of perceived as being one of these um, ways that, that the human mind could be manipulated, and so they wanted to see, and as I said, they hit Olsen with it. Well, it turns out that he didn't have, as some people do, you know, a pleasant trip. He had a traumatic one. And there are stories that he actually sort of radically altered his mindset to where he actually felt that, well, perhaps we shouldn't be doing this kind of thing after all, and perhaps it might be a good idea to tell the media, and then it'll all be shut down. So he went from being potentially somebody who was on board with the program and at the full forefront of it to possibly being a national security threat. Well... It turns out that um, he um, actually sort of plunged into a total state of, like, continual stress and paranoia, uh, all of which was traceable back to the LSD hit. Now, it turns out that what happened was that around about 2.30 a.m. on November the 28th, 1953, he threw himself out of the 10th floor window on Manhattan's Statler Hotel. Although it has to be said, because he was with uh, various people from the intelligence community at the time in the room, and there were stories about strange marks on his body that seemed to have been um, inflicted before his death, as a theory that he was thrown out of the window. So that, that in essence, is the background to Olsen and how he died. Now, what a lot of people and don't Dick, know... Not to interrupt, but, the, but the, the family never believed that. Right, they never believed that he committed suicide. They, no. they always believed he was murdered. No, actually, that's a good point. The the family uh. never accepted the the suicide approach, and um, it turns out that after um, back in the 1970s, years later, the family was actually awarded a, signif a significant amount of money. Um, you know, there was never this sort of admittance to um, you know it being murder, but there was an admittance that well, yes, he'd been hit with this drug and um i mean with lsd and um and that that probably contributed so it was sort of a little bit skirting around you know yeah. exactly what they were guilty of but somebody was guilty of something um but what's intriguing is that when we look into the whole issue of frank olsen we find that he's tied up with numerous ufo related issues and this comes back to where i think the origins began of the sort of mind control angle of the UFO issue. Now, one of the um, one of the situations um, involved a place which was called Pont Saint Esprit in France. Now, in August 1951, there was an outbreak of sort of very violent and weird hallucinations amongst the villagers. A number of them died, and hundreds were afflicted, where they were seeing these terrifying visions of like demons and strange monsters and things like this and it was initially put down to something called ergot which is a fungus that affects rye and actually can if you ingest it it can cause sort of bizarre and nightmarish hallucinations so in that sense it could have been a genuine you know just something you eat something and, and it affects you but it yeah. turns out that um um, Frank Olsen actually spent time in the area 
and documents have surfaced that actually now talk about the case linking, I mean official documents, that talk about the case itself supposedly being the subject of an official file and there's also like a note written on one particular document uh, ordering whoever oversees this file to ensure that the Pont Saint Esprit files were buried and buried is a, a literal quote from the documents and um, so the theory is that this may actually have been a test on foreign soil to, of one of these substances whether aerosol based or you know sprayed on food or something we don't know but to see how people could be affected now on top of that somebody who Frank Olson met on many occasions uh, was a man named Andrija Puharic um, probably his most famous work uh, it was called The Sacred Mushroom and again that was all about psychedelics and how the mind could be altered and sort of alternative realms could be entered into when you're in a, an altered state and um, Puharic as well as being someone who studied deeply psychedelics mind altering uh, substances and, and alien encounters he was also a captain in the US Army employed at the Army Chemical Center which worked closely with MK Ultra, and uh, although uh, Peharic and um, Olsen didn't get on too well, they actually came to blows and, uh, and a, like a small fight at one point. Um, huh. They, you know, they they were crossing over together in the UFO subject. Now, on top of that, um, none other than John Fuller, who wrote the book The Interrupted Journey um, on the Betty and Barney Hill UFO abduction case and certainly probably the first book on abductions that's sort of perceived by the UFO community as being, you know, the, the earliest book on abduction phenomena. Uh, John Fuller was fascinated by the, the uh, Pont Saint-Esprit story in France. He even wrote a book about it called The Day of St. Anthony's Fire. And from documents have surfaced now showing that the reason why Fuller was so fascinated by the story was because in the 1950s he was actually approached by some of the scientists on MK Ultra and briefed on the subject and asked if he wanted to be the first journalist to sort of you know tell the story when the day came to tell it and this has given rise to the idea that um, somebody wanted to promote the the scenario of abductions and see if you know how people minds reacted to them so it created this scenario that if John Fuller back in the 50s was briefed on MK Ultra, and then wrote about and promoted the alien abduction story of the Hills, what if he actually knew that the Hill case was an MK Ultra, Ultra psyop? That's one of the and that he was, and that he was revealing the operation. Yeah, well, he was revealing the operation, but not by exposing it, but by right. having people think that. That's exactly what happened. It was an abduction. So, that, I mean, it's a controversial theory, but I think this also bears more study. And finally, another angle, which I, I don't think many people would know about, but is an important one, is that in the 1950s, on a number of occasions, um, Frank Olson traveled to a place called Horn Island in Mississippi. Now, Horn Island, although it's like only 12 miles long, and um, really doesn't have many people living on it or anything. It's just sort of um, sands, lagoons, and wild animals. Um, but Horn Island was where the military uh, from the late 40s through the 70s um, studied, again, sort of various mind-altering chemicals and substances, one of them being known as Buzz or BZ, 
uh, as it's also known. And that's like that thing's like LSD on steroids. Yeah, exactly. It is. I mean, that yeah. pr- that provokes like really, um, you know, wild, crazy, nightmarish hallucinations. Well, it turns out. Bear in mind, Horn Island, Mississippi. It turns out that this was literally only a couple of miles from the site of one of the most famous alien abduction cases of all time, involving uh, two men, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker, in October 73. They were fishing on the Mississippi River, said they saw this strange light in the distance, got closer, they felt kind of just weeded out, and suddenly these small creatures, or actually not small like the greys, but you know, but not as sort of quite as tall as the, as us, uh, lunged at them out of this craft and floated them aboard what they perceived to be a UFO, and they went through a typical abduction experience. However, one of the things that I suggest in the book as a theory, you know, if we take the reality of the situation, that their encounter occurred just a couple of miles from where um, official investigations were being under, undertaken into BZ, uh, which could provoke massive hallucinations. You know, I wonder if they were sort of targeted for a test of, of BZ or possibly something even more hallucinogenic to the point where maybe they even saw like a helicopter coming towards them, you know, that sprayed them aerosol style and then plunged into this weird state. You know, they recall, <coughs> excuse me, they recall being taken on board a craft by creatures actually nothing like the greys. They were described as almost like a, wearing a full body suit. It was like head to toe was just like skin. And so I wonder, you know, was it guys in hazmat suits or something like that? And in their sort of altered state, they didn't recognize it. I mean, it's granted, it's in many respects, it's sort of as controversial as the abduction scenario. However, I really don't think we can rule out a potential connection based around the fact that when we see, you know, that the, the proximity of um, the event itself to where all these experiments were going on. Hey, Nick, um, you know, one observation about that, well, you you know, you've got these guys that think they're, everybody thinks they were abducted by aliens, but they were probably sprayed by our own government, and then they were just tripping balls the entire time and freaked out. And, um, you know, uh, interesting synchronicity as I was reading your book. I actually have the book, The Day of St. Anthony's Fire. Oh, okay. And I have absolutely no idea where it came from. It just ended up in my it just ended up in my book collection. So as I was reading your book, I was like, Oh, I have that book. So I thought that was interesting. And interesting that the same guy wrote the Interrupted Journey as well. Um uh, uh, have you ever heard of Phil Schneider? Yes, I have, yeah. 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 I've always wondered if Phil Schneider might have been uh, subject to that as well because the whole Dulce base battle. Yeah. I've just got to wonder if they just dosed those guys up with something. One team was the aliens, one team were the humans, and they just made them kill each other. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, with certain psychedelics, a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, how you're exposed to the substance can actually have a, a major sort of effect, spin-off effect on how you perceive it you know, in terms yeah. of a good trip versus a bad trip, um, you know, and the mood and everything else. And um, if you're, if from the outset, you're exposed to something that's highly traumatic first, you know, your adrenaline's pumping, your heart's pounding, and you're in that stressful state, and then you get hit, that's almost guaranteed 
to give you like a really bad trip. And so, again, I think a lot of experimentation was undertaken um, just to see how effective these substances were. But if you do it under a UFO guise, so to speak, most people are just going to ignore it as, oh, just, you know, just those crazy UFO freaks. And in other right. words, the UFO case, the UFO research community focuses on the UFO angle. Anybody else who may have been open been able to open more significant doors like, you know, major people in the media won't touch it. You know, they'll go after something like Watergate, but they won't touch an alien abduction story, probably for fear of, you know, upsetting their reputation or whatever. So the real story gets buried. And, it's, you know, it works brilliantly in every way. Um, I, I, I kind of came in a little bit later, so... If you were talking about your personal abduction stories, I didn't hear, but... Oh, thank you for any abduction oh, okay. stories. No, no personal encounters with anything like that? Uh, no, I've never... No, I can assure you I've never been abducted. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, I've actually... I'm one of these people who's written extensively about the subject, but I've never had a, a UFO encounter. But how I got involved and interested my, in the UFO subject specifically. My dad was in the British Royal Air Force. He worked as a radar mechanic. And he was involved in several incidents where he was brought in to examine and test the radar equipment out because the radar trackers had been tracking these sort of strange objects on the skies of flying across the English North Sea and the uh, English Channel at very high speeds and, um, and altitudes. And it clearly wasn't anything, you know, that we were flying back then. This was still the height of the Cold War. You know, America, Britain, Russia, nobody was flying anything like this. So my dad was brought in, you know, is there any issue with the equipment? Um, and there wasn't. And, of course, it was actually several different sets. It wasn't just one, you know, radar unit. And this occurred... Um, on several occasions, and when he told me the story, when my dad told me the story, it sort of really hit home two things. You know, not just because it was, you know, my own dad, but because he was, um, you know, an employee of the British Royal Air Force. You know, he was trained to do that job. So when you have a military operative saying, you know, I, can, I know for sure we tracked these things and, you know, recorded their movements and everybody was told not to talk about it, etc., etc., that sort of really got me interested, you know, in, wow, what, what is going on? You know, what does the military know? Are they hiding the truth mm -hmm. or are they hiding the fact that they literally don't know what the hell's going on or is it, you know, somewhere in between? There's a, there's a base in Indiana in like, uh, in the middle of the state. Uh, what, what is that base? It's known for UFO activity too, uh, like spikes and radiation and things like that. Are you talking about Wright Patterson in Ohio, maybe? No, it, this one's in uh, Indiana, and um, uh, sometime last year they had that that controversial like earthquake in the town that last. Oh, year, I remember that. Yeah, uh, a yeah. couple minutes or whatever, yeah. and, and then they found the radiation spike on the uh, the monitoring organization. I don't know about that one, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's one that's probably like a couple of years ago. Yeah, I, I can't remember the the name of that base, but they have some involvement and that kind of stuff too, apparently. Um, want to ask you about the most fatal of all um, UFO encounters, and that was your section on human mutilations, mm. and specifically a story 
which could go back to the mind control stuff. And when you yeah. when we were talking about BZ and how it was being sprayed, it was being sprayed on North Vietnamese troops. Um, I thought about possibility that this incident that happened in, in I think in Vietnam mm-hmm. uh, could have had something to do with that possibly. But uh, you know, a very interesting story that's almost kind of like the movie Predator. Yeah. Yeah, well, this story um, surfaced through uh, a man named Leonard Stringfield. Now, in the late 40s, well, specifically 46, Leonard Stringfield uh, was an intelligence officer with the U.S. military, and he had a very close encounter with uh, several UFOs that flew right past the aircraft that he was on at the time. Then when Stringfield retired from the military, uh, went back to just working a a regular private job, um, he spent pretty much all his free time investigating the UFO subject, primarily because, you know, he had such a close encounter. And over the years, he primarily began to focus on stories of crashed UFOs and dead aliens and wrote a number of books and reports on the subject. But he was given one particular story in the late 1980s from a man who, he never revealed his name, but Stringfield said he had a very credible background and Stringfield knew him as both a friend and and a former colleague. And he was a guy who held a, a major sort of high military position. And he told Stringfield this story about how at the height of the North, excuse me, the Vietnam War um, in Cambodia, that there was um, like a team, almost like a Delta Force type team of U.S. military personnel searching out for a North Vietnamese unit, which was like a PSYOPs type unit buried somewhere deep within the, as I said, within the uh, Cambodian jungles. And they had sort of a rough idea of where this was. So when they finally got at least closer to the location, um, you know, they started to act a bit more stealthy and careful and, and took careful steps and so forth. Turns out that they actually didn't find this North Vietnamese unit. What they found instead was like a large globe-like UFO standing on tripod legs in the jungle in like an open space area. And they reportedly saw these strange creatures, not unlike the so-called greys of alien abduction law, but taller, sort of actually five to six feet tall, but clearly not human. And they were allegedly um, loading into these large bins um, human bodies and sort of body parts like limbs and so on. And you know, for all their training, apparently the stories, they sort of froze for a second or two and just you know, didn't know how to react. But then suddenly... You know, they started firing and reported there was some sort of firefight between the two, and both sides were forced to uh, retreat when there were deaths and injuries on both sides. And the object reportedly took to the skies, not be- but not before the guys, uh, excuse me, the aliens loaded all these bins on board. And the military people were supposedly severely shocked, some of them injured, a couple of deaths. And from there, the story was that over time, um, the military personal, personnel involved were all subjected to sort of, I guess, mind-altering technologies to try and instill a cover story, a less traumatic cover story, to hide the idea that there'd been this sort of really bizarre sort of alien-human firefight and to hide the fact that aliens seem to be you know, killing people and, and taking their bodies away for who knows what reason. But you're quite right that the other sort of side of the coin is the idea that, well, how do we know that that wasn't the cover story for something else? Um, 
that's one of the big parts of the story a lot of people overlook in the sense that they take it literally, not realising that even by the admission of Stringfield Source, everybody in that alleged firefight was exposed to mind-altering technologies and also exposed to cover stories. You know, it's kind of like which comes first, the chicken or the egg, you know, which is the, which is the cover story. Um, but Stringfield said he was absolutely satisfied with his source. And, and you're right, it does kind of sound like, um, you know, something straight out of Predator. Um, but, I mean, who knows? Um, one of the reasons I don't dismiss this is because, you know, the Vietnam War, we're talking sort of early to mid-70s when this happened. Um, I actually got through the Freedom of Information Act, some FBI documents on cattle mutilations, one of which I reproduce in the book, which is a memo to the director of the FBI from, um, from a, a local office talking about, excuse me, a regional office, talking about how they'd heard rumors that the cattle mutilations were forerunners for human mutilations. And that's an official yeah. document that, that tells the director, hey, you know, we might be seeing human mutilations after these cattle mutes. So the fact that that's surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act, that's why, you know, I think we should leave the door open on these human mute stories. Well, there was the case in Brazil that uh, I think in the late 80s where they found a body in uh, Sao Paulo, in the Sao Paulo state, where he was uh, mutilated, kind of similar to the way the cows were mutilated. Yeah, there's, well, there's actually a lot of stories from all around the world of um, human mutilations. Uh, I talk about one in Idaho in 79 where a man was found yeah. dead under very weird circumstances. Um, you know, sort of organs removed, eyeballs removed, lips removed, but not torn off as if he'd been attacked by like a mountain lion or a grizzly bear, but just, you know, carefully done just in the middle of nowhere. And it was, just, it was the body was just stumbled on by, you know, two hunters who were out there. There are other cases, other stories, very weird ones of bodies being mutilated and locked morgues. And, you know, the staff come in the next day and, the, you know, the Dozens of bodies reportedly, eyeballs removed, tongues removed in the middle of the night, and almost impossible circumstances, and you know, a lot of weird stuff like that. Um, you know, one of the observational points to make is that you know, with the military guys, you know, basically when they sign to go into the military, the military owns them, mm. and they can do whatever kind of experiments, inject them with whatever kind of mm -hmm. vaccine that they want. You know, Luke yeah. and I have a friend that you know, has has had some consequences because of that. Well, but, yeah, I mean, I think it is one of these situations where the, the one of the biggest problems we have with the UFO subject is that, yeah, as I said in my mind, there's a genuine phenomenon, but the problem becomes if we know or suspect that some events have been fabricated, then this brings in this entire new aspect, well, which ones are the real ones and which ones are the fabricated ones? You know, then you begin to doubt, well, should we doubt this case? Should we doubt that case? Um, yeah. And then it's, it's, then it's like, where do you stop? I mean, I mean, who knows? I mean, I've looked at some of the early contactee cases. A lot of UFO researchers today brush those off as just nonsense. Um, but one of the most famous ones that people have overlooked one aspect of is a guy named Orfeo Angelucci, who claimed to have had sort of classic space brother type encounters in the California desert with these like long-haired aliens and hot-looking space women in silver suits and whatever, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's probably, he was probably the luckiest of all the contactees, or one of them. But um, as far as 
the his uh, story is concerned, one of the things a lot of people overlooked is that he claimed to have been contacted in the early 50s by a guy who said he could help him out and share some information on um, Angelucci's own experiences. And they agreed to meet at a, uh, a place, in uh, a, a diner out in the California desert in 29 uh, Palms. And when they got out there, uh, they're in this diner, and Angelucci said that the guy came in, sat opposite him, and said, look, I can tell you everything you need to know, but first you must take this pill. And bear in mind, he wrote this in his book in 53, uh, Angelucci, I mean. And bizarrely, he just decided to take the pill. <laughs> you know, this guy just hands him this white pill, and he's like, oh, yeah, I'll swallow it. It's like a Matrix or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, it, uh, it is like that, because within 10 minutes... Um, Angelucci said he could see like this little ballet dancer dancing in his glass of soda and the room started to look strange and the people didn't look quite right. He's clearly been drugged. And he said all the time this was going on, there were two guys in military uniforms sat one table away watching everything intently. Um, And it turns out that when he was in this weirded out state, instead of listening to the other guy tell his story, which was the original intent, the guy started grilling Angelucci and demanding to know all about his encounters with aliens. So, you know, even with some of these early contactee cases, we might be looking at staged events to see how the public would react and possibly even to, you know, make certain aspects of the phenomenon look ridiculous by inserting stories of very human-looking aliens and, you know, and so, uh, you know, some uh, space woman who looks like Pamela Anderson or whatever, you know. Um, And I think it could well have been done deliberate with mind-altering technologies. Well, Nick, you know, uh, we've talked a lot about this kind of stuff on our show, uh, and I come from a very kind of, uh, that I believe that uh, a lot of this encounters are due to altered states of consciousness. Yeah. And not just just counting that by saying it's an altered state of consciousness, but saying that you're actually accessing another realm or another dimension, so to speak. Uh, kind of the same kind of stuff uh, like Jack Parsons, you know. Or DMT, or uh, right? Yeah, we've had a guy on that's come on to talk about his experiences on DMT, and those experiences are very similar to some of alien abduction stuff. So, uh, from the mind control stuff, it could have been that either advertently or advertently, the CIA was opening a, some doorways. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean that, that's actually a good point. The idea that. Maybe somebody was looking to use these technologies to see if events could be fabricated. And I think that did happen. But it would be ironic if, by plunging somebody into an altered state, you do inadvertently expose them to the real phenomenon. Then right. it gets sort of right. really confusing. Yeah. But, I mean, I do agree with you on that. I mean, you know, a classic example is like Alistair Crowley back in 1919 with the whole work in. Uh, yeah. you know, when he's uh, in a really altered state on mescaline and hashish and has this interaction with a creature called Lamb, L-A-M. You look at the pictures of, or the, the picture of Lamb that Crowley drew, uh, apart from the big black eyes, we, although the eyes are penetrating in Crowley's picture, apart from that, it looks just like the creature on the front of Whitley Strieber's communion. And um, and that, you know, that was nothing to do with the nuts and bolts craft coming down outside Crowley's home or anything like that. It was purely from having his mind altered and, you know, a doorway opening, so to speak. It was Crowley getting really, really high and doing God knows what else. <laughs> and, yeah. 
<laughs> we did a whole show about Crowley. Um, uh, the Cash Landrum affair, I think, is one that's always interested me. And um, the possibility of that being a... Because that's real. That was some real exposure to something physically real. Yeah, I mean, Cash Landrum's one of those that sort of pushes researchers in different ways. Some people think... Well, for people who aren't aware of it, December 1980, um, two women... Um, Betty Cash and Vicky Landrum and Vicky's uh, grandson Colby um, driving along a lonely road late at night in East Texas uh, when they saw this diamond-shaped, brightly lit object in the sky which started to come closer to the ground. Um, and they just basically stopped the car in wonder at this huge thing just lower and lower in front of them. And they got out of the car, Betty Cash got closest to it, could feel this intense heat from it. They all raced back to the car. By the time they got back to the car, they could barely open the doors because the, the car itself, even the outside, was so hot. Well, it turns yeah. out that as they sort of stood and sat there amazed, um, something in the region of like 23 double-rotor military helicopters turned up um, as if they were either escorting the object or trying to escort it, or possibly even capture it. Nobody really knows. And reportedly that the object, there, there are sort of different theories that maybe it sort of shadowed the object away, or possibly lowered some, you know, like a powerful rope or, or you know, something like that and, and hauled it away. We just really don't know. But what we do know is that uh, all three got very sick, um, Betty Hill, who was closest to the object, got really sick. She experienced hair loss and blistering skin and eventually developed cancer. And um, so this is, you know, is why I included the book, because of the, the uh, illnesses, the diseases, the strange medical conditions and the death. But Basically radiation sickness. Yeah, it's yeah. like radiation sickness, yeah. But um, the case is sort of notable from the perspective that it could go one or two ways. You know, was it a genuine alien spaceship that was malfunctioning or was it some highly advanced test craft that had gone out of control or that was failing in its flight and the theory is that it could have been nuclear powered and um, bathed the people in, in, um, in radiation and Betty Hill you know, took the brunt of it. Um, but whatever happened, I mean, it, it's a very credible case. Um, sure, not, not Betty Hill. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but, okay. um, yeah, Betty Cash. And, um, but the, yeah, I mean, it's a very credible case, um, and it's one that still sort of stands the test of time to this day. And uh, I doubt we'll ever really know one way or another. You know, there are, there are rumours it was a nuclear power craft, but then there again there are rumours that, it was a military response team responding to a genuine unknown. So, um, also, uh, to kind of like the time that we have left, I want to talk about the SDI scientists. That was one that I found like really in the interviews that I've heard about this book and reading the book that I found like really compelling. And then at the end, you you of that chapter, you pull out an interesting angle. Um, that someone came up with about like the connection that the jinn were involved. Yeah, you, you, I mean, you talk about all the Marconi scientists, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah the Marconi scientists. Yeah, yeah, well, this is a really weird story that many people may not know about, but it all goes back to President Ronald Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, um, 
or as it was better known, or its nickname of Star Wars. The idea was to have sort of this orbiting fleet, if you like, of laser-based weapons that in the event that the Russians or the Chinese or whoever tried to launch a sneak nuclear attack on the West, that this huge orbiting armada of laser weapons could essentially just destroy the, the, uh, any enemy missiles before they barely got out of the silos. So it, it, in effect, it would be like a laser-based shield. Now, the technology was sort of highly advanced, and for the time, and with retrospect, it looks like it was too advanced, but, you know, President Reagan wanted to push on with it, and so a lot of research was undertaken. And one company that was brought on board to do research and studies was an, an English company called Marconi. It still exists today, but it's since been absorbed into, into another company. And Marconi does work and has for, for decades uh, for the British Ministry of Defence, the military, in areas such as um, advanced computers, underwater weaponry, laser weapons, rocketry, uh, space travel, um, military technologies, things like this, and also um, advanced computer systems. So these would have all been components that have, would have been vital to the, the SDI program. Now, one of the interesting things that was going on at the same time that Reagan was promoting SDI is that he was also making a number of public speeches around the world where he spoke out about how we would all as a human race have to come together and be unified if we faced an external alien threat. And the fact that he mentioned this on a number of occasions, I actually do think he was trying to get some sort of message out for us to think about it. Um, and there have been three, uh, theories and rumours in relation to all this that perhaps SDI, while legitimately aimed at the Soviets and the Chinese, may well have had like a, a backup um, role um, to deal with an incoming external threat. In other, ways, in other words, the, the weapons would be focused outwards to outer space rather than down to the Soviet Union or whatever. Yeah. This has given rise to another theory that well, if they say that's true, then the aliens or the interdimensional entities or the jinn, as I mentioned in the book, whatever they were, how would they stop SDI from developing? Well, perhaps wipe out the scientists that were working on it. And that's actually what happened, is that between 1982 and 1991, no less than 31 people in the UK, scientists, computer programmers, analysts, all sorts of different people, who were either working directly for Marconi or allied to it, uh, died under very weird circumstances. Uh, these were people who, just for all intents and purposes, were regular normal people until their deaths occurred. Some of them um, just came home from work, put the car in, inside the garage, and, and just you know gassed themselves, carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, there were others yeah. who electrocuted themselves in very bizarre ways. Others jumped off bridges. Um, a couple uh, were driving at high speed on the highways and just um, just sort of just went across the other side of the highway into oncoming traffic and killed themselves. Another guy filled the trunk of his car up uh, with two gallon containers of gasoline and um, <laughs> and, blew, and drove into um, a, a disused restaurant and blew himself up. Now, Did he want to just make sure? Did he just want to make sure that he he died? Was that was was that one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was a really interesting case where one of these scientists actually didn't die. What happened was that he turned up in France three months later yeah. in a total daze, actually Paris, France, 
without a, any knowledge of where he'd been for the last couple of months. This is almost like as if his mind had been taken over and an attempt to kill him had probably failed. And that actually ties in with some of the other cases where some of the scientists who died, they actually had had a near-death type event before they died. For example, there was one who, who was found dead in his garage from carbon monoxide poisoning. But not long before that, um, he'd had a weird car accident where he said it felt like something had compelled him to drive off the side of the road into oncoming traffic. And he, was, he had to fight the urge to do it. So he just about survived that, only then, as I said, to be found dead from carbon monoxide poisoning. And there are a lot of cases like that where the person had like a secondary event. The secondary one was the fatal because first time it didn't work. And Gordon Crichton, who was the editor of Flying Saucer Review magazine um, and also a former British military intelligence officer, he came to believe that the entities behind the entire UFO phenomenon aren't extraterrestrial. He viewed them what we might call extra-dimensional or interdimensional, and he thought they were responsible for the legends of everything from, like, demons and, um, and aliens and also the Middle Eastern jinn, which is where... Uh, the term genie comes from. You know, today we think of genies like little women in bottles and so on or whatever. But the reality is that the jinn, which were just sort of described as like an energy-based entity, were sort of very hostile to the human race. They sort of coexisted in another, like a magical realm, which today we might call another dimension, um, and hated the human race and could manipulate us very well, you know, in ways that to us might seem like magic, but could well have been sort of advanced mind technologies and Crichton believed that it was sort of gin type entities that were behind the SDI murders as bizarre as it sounds but I mean I mean who knows if these entities mm -hmm. can get into your mind and screw with your mind then all things are possible in that sense yeah we had uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley on oh, yeah. last year she had a book about the gin yeah. that she had out we talked uh, pretty extensively about them and uh, you know they're they're kind of like a full spectrum almost of of this kind of phenomenon. I mean you got alien abductions that can be evolved with them, shadow people, uh sleep paralysis, uh succubus, incubus kind of activity, um just just plain poltergeist hauntings that can be evolved with with them stuff that she studied. Oh yeah, I mean if you read Rosemary's book, I mean the gin I mean they just come across as like totally Menacing, you know what I mean? They're just you, just the, your worst nightmare. If they get your grips, their grips into you. Is there anything you wanted to ask, Luke? Uh, I don't have any questions. I'm just kind of sitting back, absorbing. You know, I've I've never heard of any of these cases. Uh, of of course, I've heard of Roswell and yeah. uh, uh, one of the other ones, but all of the rest. And that's that's a really interesting uh, angle earlier about. Uh, it, it possibly being mind control experiments, you know, using Americans as guinea pigs. I've never really put that together before. You know, using the LSD and the and the what was it called? B B T B Z B Z B Z to uh, give them and implant that the uh, the vision of the aliens into their brain. Right. And, and one interesting thing about the FBI scientist too was the one that. Uh, Felt the compulsion, I believe, to drive off the road, and then later on he put uh, a tube from his exhaust pipe yeah. and killed himself with carbon monoxide. 
you, you make the point that that's similar in another chapter, which we haven't talked about, about uh, uh, Morris K. Jessup. That he exactly the had same. the same thing happened to it's him. exactly the same. Jessup, I mean, he was looking into the Philadelphia experiments and pyramids being moved by anti-gravity pyramid stones and things like that. But, yeah, he, in late 58, had this weird experience where, again, he felt compelled to drive off the side of the road and... Um, didn't know why, and he was actually very badly injured. And this was after he was digging into some sort of really serious stuff. And um, and then he was found dead in his car in a Florida park in uh, early 1959, again, with a hose pipe going from the exhaust. But there were a lot of weird stuff surrounding um, Jessup's death in the sense that he was never autopsied. Um, he just looked like a suicide, so that's what he was assumed to be. Right. There was never even any attempt to, like, take blood and see if his blood contained carbon monoxide you know if he'd been breathing when he was in the car it would be saturated with it but if there was no carbon monoxide in his blood that would have mean he was dead before he was put in the car for some reason nobody ever thought to check that out you know which is really weird was, itself there was something about too was weird about that was that apparently he went out to buy towels when he could have just used the towels from his house yeah that they were yeah the, all these towels stuffed in the windows around where the hose um enter the window, obviously done yeah. to, you know, make sure no air got in and the carbon monoxide didn't get out. But yeah, they weren't the family's towels. Nobody could figure out where the towels came from. And they were all soaked as well. Now, there was a lake nearby, but the lake, you know, it was just, it was lake water. The towels had been soaked in regular water, tap water. And although there was like a drinking fountain in the park, the problem was nobody could find any sort of container that Jessup could have used to um, to bring the, um, you know, the um, containers and, and the water to the car or vice versa. Um, there, there was just nothing anywhere and there was, you know, there was no water uh, or any telltale container around the car, nothing like that. It was almost as if somebody had just, you know, put him in the car, then soaked the towels and then stuffed them in the window. Um, Nick, I wanted to ask you, um, yesterday, uh, and this, um, I watched this film, and I don't know how off the subject this is, but, uh, called Alternative 3. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. And I thought maybe being from Britain, you might have some insight into that. And apparently it was like a hoax. Yeah. Uh, like kind of like the War of the Worlds broadcast. Yeah. Do you think there was any validity in some of the stuff that could have been in that? Well, yeah, documentary. I mean, yeah, the, the alternative three film. The, the best parallel I can think of, and this is actually a recent one. I don't know if you ever saw it. There was a show on Animal Planet. It was called Mermaid: The Body Found, and it was. Yeah, a, I think Luke saw it. Oh, but, okay. Uh, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it was kind of like a really confusing show for a lot of people because you know a lot of people wonder well is this real or is it fake or is it somewhere in between the idea of like a, a, a US government agency hiding the fact that mermaids existed but they weren't like in the stories you know they were almost like savage equivalent to the creature from the Black Lagoon or something like that um, yeah. and it's kind of like that with Alternative 3 it was presented as factual but you know, that the people in it were actors, you know, that was provable. But it was presented as a, a scenario where there was like a secret space program running alongside NASA's, and NASA knew nothing about this secret one, and it was partly related to the idea of evacuating the elite to Mars in the event of, you know, our planet 
been destroyed or just been overwhelmed by pollution and population or whatever. Um, but some people have suggested the idea that, um, you know, what if it was somebody was sort of seeding a story or telling a story that was true, but they felt the only way they could do it safely would be to present it as fiction and have people yeah. think about it from that perspective, which is an interesting concept. Um, and, you know, we do today, admittedly, hear stories of, like, secret space programs that, you know, maybe they have been clandestine return missions to the moon or to Mars, and the idea is it's sort of run by some sort of shadow group that, again, literally NASA really does not know anything about it. So, you know, I actually don't... Although I think, you know, taking the whole Alternative 3 scenario uh, literally 100% would be wrong... I, I actually do think it could have been inspired by stories and snippets of information that had surfaced, and somebody said, "Well, you know, this sounds interesting. Let's put it out and and see what the response is." Do you remember when it would when it aired, and do you, were a lot of people faked out by it? Yeah, I was actually a little kid when it aired, and I remember watching it, and um, I, I won't say people were freaked out, but he did make the newspapers for a couple of days afterwards. Um, yeah. You know, where people were talking about it and whatever, but um, it, it kind of died to death in terms of, you know, why it, it wasn't like the War of the Worlds thing or anything like that. I mean, it just, it was just, it was, the, I would say the response was no different in the UK to the Mermaids thing. You know, it had a flurry of controversy and people asking questions, and that was it. But certainly, I mean, it's sort of like the JFK assassination or Roswell, it has its own sort of subculture today where. Um, you know, a large amount of research has been done into it. Actually, a friend of mine, Olaf Phillips, has actually got a, a new book out all about... All yeah, I want to try to right get him now. on, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's just yeah. literally come out, so that might, he might be a good person to get on to talk about it. Um, you know, it was it was really it was really compelling. I mean, and I knew it was fake and all, but it was an interesting it, it was interesting the way it was done. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the important thing. I mean, the, the show was it, the show itself was fake, but when you look at some of the people involved, the background and the reaction, there may well have been truths in the story that somebody wanted getting out. And I, and I think that's the important thing. Not that we take every aspect of it literally, but we look at what can be vindicated from studying the movie. And maybe that was the point, to sort of point researchers and investigators into certain directions. Yeah, I think one of the things about it was it was supposed to be shown on April Fool's Day. Yeah. But for some reason, it got pushed forward to yeah. June 20th. Yeah. So that's why everybody was <laughs> kind of confused. Yeah. Um, what are you working on? The time that we have on now... Uh, Nick, what are you working on now, and how can everybody get your books? Okay. Uh, well, the books are all available for, from Amazon or uh, most online bookstores. You can also get them off the shelves in Barnes & Noble. Um, I've actually got another book out right now. Just I haven't written at the same time. It's just through to publishing schedules that they've come out together because they're with different companies. But this is one I co-wrote with Brad Steiger. It's called The Zombie Book, and it's like an A to Z of... About a 400-page oh, wow. A to Z of everything to do with zombies. Um, it's got about 250 entries. So there are entries on things like V for virus, uh, A for apocalypse, and there's like a thousand-word background thing. And so there are sections on, you know, real-life viruses. How quickly do they act? Do they act as quickly as a zombie virus? And um, 
Christmas entries on, for example, how the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, have actually got guidelines on their website for how to deal with a zombie outbreak. <laughs> as, as bizarre as that sounds, it's, it's all on the CDC site. Um, so it, it's, and then there's like um, studies of zombies in movies and novels and history and folklore and things like um, um, West Indies culture and beliefs in relation to voodoo and zombies. And um, so that one's out right now. And then I've got a book um, coming out. I'm not sure if it's going to come out later this year or early next year. But it's all about the sort of various road trip expeditions I've been on, looking for the Chupacabra and Puerto Rico and various other places. And so it's like a road trip um, on the hunt for the Chupacabra. Cool. Uh, People can reach me if they want to contact. I've got a a blog, which is Nick Redfern 40 and F-O-R-T-E-A-N. NickRedfern40.blogspot.com, or just type me into Facebook, and uh, you can find me there as well. And you know, always pleased to chat with people, or if they've got any questions, you know, try and answer them for them. So. And Nick, I always enjoy your song of the day. You know, I'm a big, oh, cool. uh, big late '70s punk fan myself. Oh, good. So. Yeah, I always like something <laughs> loud, fast, and noisy on there every day. So. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Nick, thank you for coming on, and uh, do things you want to add, Luke, or. Mm-hmm. All right, Luke is man of many words. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I've been kind of dozing. Adam's seen me. Uh, I, I had a big, I had a big burger before I came over here. And it about knocked me out. <laughs> well, Nick, stay on the line for just for a little bit. We're All just right. going to close this part out, and we'll be right back on conspiracy normal. normal. So what? I don't care. I've got skid marks in my underwear. All right. <laughs> And we're back. Uh, I don't care. I don't care about you. <laughs> we were just listening to some uh, British punk there. Uh, we talked to Nick a little bit uh, offline about to, about music and uh, some language there. So we're probably not going to put that up. But no. Um, you know, so we were listening to some uh, anti nowhere league here. I, I told you you need to make use pumped. of the bleeps, man. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how to do that. You need to show me I'll how show to do you that. that. Anyway, so uh, Luke. Since uh, you didn't talk too much, you were kind of dozing off there. Yeah, I can't help it, man. I, I guess I committed carbicide again. <laughs> knocking me out. This time it wasn't cat food spaghetti, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I know I got some problems. No, yes, yesterday yesterday was exhausting, man. Was, we had a blast, though. I had to, I got, we got to, shooting guns and drinking, drinking and beer, shooting guns, riding four wheelers, dude. Yeah, man, that's what we do in that's Tennessee. That's what life is all about. Hell yeah. <laughs> Luke's over here hanging out with my dog. Uh, yeah, but what was the original question? Yeah, so just real briefly, you know, we were talking about uh, we we spent a good deal of that interview talking about uh, mind control and about how that could be linked up to alien abduction. Yeah, and uh, you know that was a uh, some really interesting things that I found in that book that I didn't really expect to find. And like I said, you know, the book about the uh, people in France uh, supposedly eating the contaminated bread, I actually have. And no idea how it got into my book collection. It just kind of just ended up there. And I always, it, it's like they're torn up. You. There's Yeah, they're, they're watching me, man. It's torn up. There's like, you know, there's hardly any spine and the covers off of it. So I'm always like, what the hell is this book? But that's <laughs> the book. And I have it. So thought that was interesting i've seen that book before someone else has had it My yeah mom or somebody 
Well, that's once you get to your kind of your your insights. Well, that. well, like I like I said uh, during the podcast, uh, I'd never thought of it that way. And and what doesn't make sense to me is that okay, you know, if you've got if you actually do have aliens landing and you know causing problems, like which I'm kind of skeptical about in the first place, you know. Sure. But I think you've been more skeptical about that as we've gone along in the show. But. Well. Um, so, so if you, you've actually got that going on and there's cover-ups all over the nation, then why would the people involved in the mind control experiments, why would they use an alien as a format to try to, you know, implant that into people's minds at the beginning of their LSD trip? Because I think, and I think Nick touched on this somewhat, is it would be, people would not believe it. It would be something that would be seen as, oh, that's just science fiction, or that's just some crazy people. So they would make the subjects think that they were being abducted by aliens, and then they'll go perpetuate the that and they'll they perpetuate were. that they actually were. Yeah. Abducted okay. By and then everyone just associates th- that with being a crazy person. Right. So that that's your cover. Uh, in okay. other words, you don't have to worry about. Uh, someone revealing you or, or just exposing you because everybody's just going to think they're nuts. Gotcha. Right. Uh, found it interesting, especially about all the stuff about BZ and uh, the uh, story that was in Vietnam of the aliens putting uh, human meat onto the onto the UFOs. Maybe you missed that one. No, I, that I was heard, that was strange. I heard that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really weird. Yeah, that was re- that was really strange. Um, but uh, anything that you wanted to, to talk about or um, or add before we uh, call it a night? Uh, we didn't nice really, long interview there. So we didn't really prepare for that, huh? <laughs> prepare for what? For a, like a final thought. Oh uh, well, you know, it is what it is, my friend. Uh, we, uh, Bobby and I, uh, Bobby Harden and I, well, maybe it's just Bobby and I, we were, we were talking about something pretty deep the other day. And it's gone. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> of course it is. We'll remember it later. My life's in a blur. <laughs> not, not really too bad. Not as bad as it used to be, but, you know, still, yeah. I'm still, like, pretty damn ADD. Well, I want to, I want to thank Nick for coming on. I know it was a really good interview. Uh, we covered a ton of ground in it. And, uh. You know, I've had some return guests, and in a couple of weeks, we're going to have, for the fourth time, Mr. Adam Go-Rightly returning. Uh-oh. And this show is going to be interesting, because we're going to kind of take it in a way that, uh, remember the whole Burning Man show that we did with Tex Allen? Uh-huh. We're kind of going to take it in that way, because we're going to talk a little bit about Discordianism, and the history of Discordianism. Uh, wait. Hey, Adam, have you actually yourself practiced sex magic? Well, no. <laughs> no, I have not. That was one of the finest moments in conspiratorial history, by the way. This is what you to know that. <laughs> well, you always are looking at, like, putting me on the spot sometimes yeah. to ask a question. No, so no, was it was like... an excellent question. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, dude, you're so interested in it. Have you done it? <laughs> have you, Luke? I like to think... That or, you have. <laughs> no, I, I used to like to think that, uh, because... I, I still believe, I'm still under the impression that, like, once you sleep with somebody, there's some kind of, like, a bond there. Yeah. Uh, and ethereal, I guess, would be the word to use for it, bond. Um, and it takes a while to get over that, you know? It, it's, 
I don't think it's you know like sex is something just casual, like a handshake. You know, I think there's more to it on other levels. I would agree. I would agree with that. But it we should be an interesting show. We're going to talk about kind of like the the history of it. You know, is it a joke religion? Um, is it a real thing? You know, uh, Go Rightly is like the is like a high priest I think now, and he has all the. Uh, he has all the, um, like, Discordian writings. You know, we covered that a little bit, I think, for our last show with him. Is he going to start in a, a Discordian army? Yeah, he might. You never know. He might bring it over here. And get with the... <laughs> get with the he lives in California, man. Get with all his geneticists that are coming, make, uh, making the babies with the blue eyes and the blonde hair now. That's, that's right. You and never have, know. have a genetic super army. <laughs> Le- led by Go Rightly. <laughs> Well, we're gonna talk about uh, we'll, we'll talk about Carrie Thornley and some of the other people that were involved. Robert, Robert Anton Wilson that was involved with Discordianism and the Illuminatus trilogy. And uh, get his uh, get his take probably on the uh, the Illuminati trading cards that uh, Doc Marquis makes such a big deal about. Yeah, those are, I'm I'm with Doc on that one, man. That's pretty wild. Pretty weird, huh? That guy <laughs> that guy in the uh, in the backlash card looks just like Obama. Yeah, he that's looks, true. That came out in 94, and he looks just like him. Does, does look like Obama. I agree with that. But uh, we're going to call it a night. And, uh, guys, thank you for listening. And thank you, Luke, for always for being here. You're so welcome. For showing up. And, to, gra- uh, to grace and Conspiranormal it- with, with my awesome presence. <laughs> and, to, and napping. My, intellect, my intellectual <laughs> prowess that I display in every, in every episode. <laughs> well, join us next, next time, guys, for... Conspiranormal!
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. <laughs> 